Hello, and welcome to The Word is Resistance. This is a podcast where we're exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach about living, surviving, and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, times in which we're living and have been living for quite a long time. My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm recording this week from a convening of rural North Carolina pastors as part of my work with the organization Faith Matters Network. This podcast, however, is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice, which organizes and mobilizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white folks like myself, specifically white Christians or other Jesus followers, who are realizing that to follow Jesus in this time and in this country means to listen to and learn from and join in the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We would love to hear what you think, and we especially welcome feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and this podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas, and transcripts are available on our website. That includes references and credits and copyright information. The music that you will hear and already have heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group here you're, who you hear singing it is No Enemies. They're a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice that the song is from is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're really grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I want to start with acknowledging that a lot of you, like me, are probably feeling overwhelmed, terrified, grieving, outraged, or numb right now. Let's meet each other there. So let's start with a few breaths for us both to get in touch with our bodies. Ruby Sales, a movement elder and a mentor of my organization at Faith Matters Network, always tells us to ask where it hurts. So right now, notice where it hurts. And then take a few more deep breaths and root into the places that do feel powerful in you. Places that feel resilient and capable. This too is a part of you. There was a massacre this weekend in El Paso and a terrifyingly similar attack in Dayton. The El Paso shooter was a white supremacist who posted a manifesto about hating immigrants. While the Dayton shooter's motives are currently still unknown at the time of recording this, he was also a young white male who shot up a public place with people of color. There were also seven people shot and killed in Chicago this weekend. 
On a New York Times article on the shooting in El Paso, I saw the night that it happened that someone wrote, I don't think it's even been a week since the last one, the last mass shooting, they said. They continued in the comment saying, I stopped crying after Parkland. Reading that, something pierced into my heart, knowing that my biggest fears come true more and more day by day. That there's greater collective numbness, not only to mass shootings, but to mass terrorism by white supremacists. I remembered giving myself some guidance after another major hate-based attack a couple years ago. Here's what I wrote to myself, which I'll repeat for my own benefit, and yours too, if it's helpful. 1. Feel the enormity, whatever is coming up. Or if you can't feel it right now, or if it's not safer, you don't have the support to really go there right now. Figure out a time when you can, and what kind of networks you might need to tap to touch into your emotions. 2. Look to people who have been doing work on the ground in the community affected for years. Look to those who live and work and are organized there already. Look to them for your cues on action and solidarity. This does not mean presidential hopefuls or others who will expect to swoop in as heroes. 3. Connect. Connect to those around you, your family, your partner, your friends, your members of your congregation, people you respect, people you're bringing into relationship. Connect emotionally and strategically. Connect in ways that are oriented both towards deepening action and trust. Connect and remember you're not alone. Four, respond. It'll be messy and it'll be imperfect. But respond. Say what you want to say and do what you feel you need to do. This past June, I lost one of my parents completely unexpectedly. She was a beautiful woman, a super fun parent. She was a trans woman, a clarinet player, a lover of sailing, of jazz, of radios, and hilarious puns that she kept on file. If losing her has taught me anything about grief and outrage and things that are completely unfair, it is that there is no perfect way to feel or to respond to tragedy. But to retain our humanness, we must, even when we'd rather go numb. This is a particularly important plea to my fellow white people in this moment. People of color have had to bear the emotional burden of white supremacy every single day and do so in every minute. Whiteness, on the other hand, is about being born into generational numbness. So repeat it in your heart and let tears come, whether that's in the morning or later in the afternoon or at 3 a.m. or in a bathroom stall. And remember, there was a massacre in El Paso this weekend, and another in Ohio, and another in Chicago, and others that did not make the news. Many people are dead. In El Paso, the shooter was a white supremacist who posted a manifesto about hating immigrants 
and evoked our president's worldview. This is real. And this is our world. the New Testament text for this Sunday, August 11th, is from Hebrews 11. It starts with one of my favorite quotes from the New Testament. It can always make me weep. The quote is, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But I'll be real with you, when I saw the rest of the passage this week, I didn't want to wrestle with it. I didn't want to do the podcast on any of these texts. And this one in particular, with the news from this weekend fresh in my eye sockets, all I could see was the interpretation of a text like this that could end up on an online manifesto to defend a white supremacist terror attack. It is very easy to read this text through the lens of the idea of promises made to white America and the long history of American exceptionalism and empire. And this makes me sick to my stomach. The second line in the passage says, Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. There's a calling forth of ancestors here that is easily twisted into a theology of supremacy if you take it out of the context of Paul as a Jew writing to fellow Jews under Roman occupation, Paul, who was interpreting his own scriptures that were rendered themselves under centuries of oppression by other empires. So let's talk about white Christian supremacy specifically and how this text might be used towards that end. The text continues to describe Abraham's faith and what it had to do with a promised land and a promised city designed by God. It reads, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. You see, the problem is when you feel something is promised to you by God, especially when you're already in the position of power, like white Christians in America, when that promise seems to start going away, or not winning you what it was supposed to, you might start feeling fear and anger and desire to protect the inheritance. The idea of white genocide, a fear that with society becoming more multicultural and integrated, that white people will disappear, this is a core belief of white supremacy that is quite old. I want to read you a couple quotes from Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi in the early 1960s. He famously resisted integration and was loved by many white people because of that stance, about how he stood up to the federal government to prevent the winds of the civil rights movement from being enforced. He stated that there is no case in history where the Caucasian race has survived social integration. We will not drink from the cup of genocide. No school will be integrated in Mississippi while I am your governor. This is not a young, alienated, lonely, white man finding an online form on the internet. 
This was not a mass shooter posting on Facebook Live. This was the governor of Mississippi in 1962, a rich, wealthy, extremely powerful white man in the state, the most powerful white man in the state. The idea of the great replacement that white nationalists and white supremacists now buy into is the same fear that Ross Barnett stoked among white people in a stadium at Ole Miss in 1962 before they caused a riot at James Meredith's enrollment. It's the fear that white people, and white Christians specifically, are getting replaced. As you've probably seen in many articles and can piece together yourself, this is echoed as we speak in Trump's fear-mongering about invasions of immigrants. And it's not unique to Trump, but it's also happening with far-right and proto-fascist leaders across Europe. The El Paso shooter referenced racial mongrelization as part of what he is fighting, the idea that races should not be mixed. Now, here's one more quote from the Mississippi governor, Ross Barnett, in 1962, over the struggle of James Meredith's entry into Old Miss. He said, I love Mississippi. I love our people. I love our heritage. I lift this up because I think it's really important. Important especially when so many more people are waking up to the deeply urgent problem and violence of white supremacy, and many people are taking action and having conversations about race. I think in order to do that well and effectively, especially pastorally and prophetically at the same time, we have to remember that racism as its core as a form of social control and the control of capital and resources has always been not just about hatred and fear of the other or misunderstanding of some kind. It's also always been about a thwarted, distorted, and I believe sinful version of exclusionary love. So I want to tell two stories that talk about love and hope and hope in things not seen, like our scripture text from Hebrews. I want to talk about how that can be instrumentalized towards organized racism or towards organized collective liberation, especially for those of us committed to organizing in white communities where white nationalists are trying to win hearts and minds, which is, admittedly, all white communities across class, region, and culture. These two stories are both about white women living now in 2019. These women are both committed to the well-being of their families. They both have a fierce protective energy. They both are devout Christians. They are both poor. They both like to see people around them well-fed. They are not my stories, but I will try to represent them with the best integrity that I can. is about Tamara Goodwin. Tamara is featured in a, in a documentary called Path to Radicalization, A Mother Turns to Hate. Judging by the title of the film, you can probably tell where this is going. It's a short documentary made by an Asian-American photojournalist and war documentarian named Ed Wu. I saw Ed filming this part of it, 
in a White Lives Matter rally that I was counter-protesting in Shelbyville, Tennessee. He was the one person of color I saw amidst a huge crowd of neo-Nazis, Klan members, and other white supremacists that were gathering, praying, and chanting blood and soil. He was filming them. I didn't know what he was doing, but I later found out when I saw this documentary premiered. Ed set out to do a report on the growth of white nationalist groups in the U.S., but he wrote later that this also tells another story I had not intended to tell. It's the tale of the Goodwin family and how they were transformed and instrumentalized by a white nationalist group. Tamara Goodwin lives in Arkansas with her husband, and until her son was drawn into a white nationalist group online, she said she never liked getting into politics. Jacob Goodwin, her son, was arrested in Charlottesville for brutally beating a black counter-protester at the Unite the Right rally. Jacob is unrepentant for what he did, and he faithfully still follows the ideals of Shield Wall, a Nazi movement that denies the Holocaust and whose leader believes in the extermination of all non-white people. Tamara, Jacob's mom at the beginning of the film, doesn't know much about her son's beliefs. When she's asked about it, she seems in denial and in tumult at the same time. It's like she's trying to hold two things together, her deep, deep love for her son and her intense grief at him being behind bars. Holding that at the same time as her, as her disagreement with his racist views. Like most white people, she says, I'm not a racist. Slowly, conversation after conversation around their kitchen table, Tamara and her husband are contacted and courted by Billy Roper, the leader of Shieldwall. He and the group pay for their son's court fees. They do fundraising for him and give them long hugs and listen to their pain. You could even say he listens pastorally. And yes, he is a proud, self-proclaimed, unashamed neo-Nazi. With this kind of listening and showing up for this family, Billy nearly instantly gains Tamara's trust. And then he begins to share more about his group's beliefs. Day by day, he sits side by side with Tamara and her husband as he helps them build an analysis in which he affirms their racist instincts that they have, which I will say all white people have. But he affirms these to a point and then adds in information and helps them draw conclusions so that eventually they come to feel what their son believes too. They say, hey, maybe he's right. Maybe white people are under attack. Samira's husband eventually says, this is changing the person I am because anger makes you look at things differently. You begin to say, I don't care about how you feel about me because the only people helping my son are these people. Until the end of the documentary, Tamara vehemently denies to the filmmaker that she is racist or that she's getting into something fringe and deeply dangerous. Even until the very last visit they had, when the Goodwins are hosting a Stormwall militia march in their front yard, which Tamara joyfully agrees to do the cooking for. 
She says, just because some of these people are here doesn't mean I agree with them. I don't agree with some of these hard people. I don't agree with this violence. But anytime they want to come here and train, I'll feed them. I've made, I've made friends through Jacob being in jail. I've made great friends. Ed U, the filmmaker, wrote, It was with this same warmth and openness that Tamara showed me, as an agent and a filmmaker, that enabled her to let in the Shield Wall Network and Billy Roper, whom the Southern Poverty Law Center has listed as the uncensored voice of violent neo-Nazism. Ed continued to say, To her, it was about belonging and surrounding herself with support for her son, baking cornbread, and having them nearby to snap photos for Jacob. To Tamara, it was about faith. It was about believing in something not seen, that her son could get out of jail. She became a neo-Nazi in the process. The second story is about Stacy Farley. Stacy is around the same age as Tamara Goodwin, maybe a little younger. She was homeless a while back and lived in Tent City in Nashville on the banks of the Cumberland River. For Stacy, Tent City was like a family at a critical time. All other people experiencing homelessness and deep poverty who protected themselves and their community from various threats, including the police and the city government, that tried to shut the encampment down. I have several close friends that organized and resisted alongside Stacy at that time and knew her well. Early in the morning on July 22nd, Stacy saw that her neighbor, who had been there for years, was getting harassed by two white men in plain clothes in an unmarked car. She watched what was going on for a bit and then figured out that they were ICE officers. She texted a pastor and an organizer she knows, my friend Ingrid, who texted her back a meme with tips on what to do if ICE comes to your door. Stacy's neighbor already knew his rights. He knew that he didn't have to submit himself to being detained. Stacy backed him up and demanded that, ICE, that the ICE officer show him a judicial warrant. Turns out they didn't have one. They just had a crumpled up piece of blank paper in their pockets. So then Stacy started knocking on other neighbors' doors, like Felicia and Miss Angie, two black women and very close friends of hers. All of them, this whole crew, all women, mostly women of color except for Stacy, were particularly committed to being connected to each other in their neighborhood because there had recently been a shooting. Just like back in Tent City years ago, Stacy was used to keeping watch, used to helping keep people safe around her. And in this case, she was also used to mouthing off to authorities who were trying to do harm to someone she cared about. You see, when she figured out that ICE officers were trying to detain her neighbor and that they were making threats not just against him but his son and his wife, she told the ICE officers, Well, I hope you have a lunch because you're going to be here a while, honey. I could do a whole podcast about what happened next. But here's what you need to know that even the lawyers involved on the side of the man who was being detained, they said that nothing could be done to protect him. This was it. He had to take a deal to turn himself into ice. But he said no. He said, keep trying. I don't want to leave my family. 
There's got to be something more that can be done. The neighbors like Stacy and Felicia and Angie and organizers and allies from Rapid Response Networks that arrived took a complete leap of faith and followed his lead. They got him food during the standoff and kept them fed. It got live streamed and went viral. The news media came. Eventually, ICE left and everyone formed a human chain to get the man and his son safely back into their home. I was not there in person, but I helped coordinate to help move the family into sanctuary location that was part of a congregational network that was years in the making. The story made national news and even international news that night and in the following days. All because the man himself, whose name I can't share for his safety, and Stacy and Felicia and the organizers followed his utterly radical, unfathomable hope that something more could be done. That his detention by ICE was not inevitable, even though such rapid response is rarely successful when it is attempted, once ICE has someone in their reach. That morning, Stacy, as a formerly homeless, poor, white woman, believed in the promise she had made to her neighbors to show up for them. Without fail. She and her neighbors believed in something hoped for but not seen. Others of us in the community have been, pre have been preparing for such a response to ICE raids for years. We had hoped for it. We hadn't seen it. Then it came true. I'm telling the story from the lens of Stacey partly because she was the first neighbor to respond, but also partly to show that, like Anne Braden said, a white woman organizer in the South, we have a choice. You don't have to join the world of the lynchers. You have a choice, Anne Braden said. You can join the other America. There is an other America. Who people show up for and who shows up for them, and whether love gets defined as collective across difference or narrowly within a category of white identity, this difference matters a whole freaking lot. And I believe as organizers and as people of faith, we can and absolutely must be a part of making that difference. several actions cropping up in solidarity with El Paso and Dayton against racism and gun violence. I recommend checking out the call to action from immigrant-led groups and allies with the hashtag El Paso Firme or El Paso Strong. 
If you march against gun violence or call your representatives or shut it down in any way for anything, as we should, make sure you raise your voice against gun violence in a way that also names the urgency of the problem of white supremacy. And make sure you demand that any gun control laws must not disproportionately harm communities of color as they have in the past. I'll link to some ideas about that in the, in the transcript. Also, make a connection with working-class-led organizing in both communi white communities and communities of color. Whether it's in the form of elite corporations benefiting from immigrant detention or from neo-Nazi groups in our backyard or online, we must remember that we cannot only defeat white supremacists through reaction. We must out-organize them. Another step to take this week is to commit to talking with a family member or another white person in your life who is feeling compelled to believe in the idea of immigrants invading the United States, which has its roots in the white supremacist narrative of white genocide. Surge has some tips on these kinds of conversations with other white folks so that they don't end in useless fighting. I will commit to have that conversation too. Thank you for joining me this week. In an interview after blocking the ice raid with her neighbors, Stacy said, I hope that if it happened someday in someone else's community, that they would do the same for their neighbor. Would I do it again? Yes, I would do it again. And Felicia said in a TV interview after the raid, they came to the wrong community on the wrong day. Whether it's ICE officers or white nationalist militias or detention centers or prisons or coal mines, we must all become the wrong community. And it must always be the wrong day. May we believe in things hoped for but not seen till the end, no matter what. Amen. This episode is dedicated with love to movements including X or the Mix in Nashville and all of my friends who joined Miss Stacy and Felicia to block the ice raid in Hermitage, Tennessee.